Welcome to the Sorry Eyed Effect. I'm Steph. And I'm Brendan. And I'm Jen. On this podcast, we'll be chatting about all things Williams Syndrome. The ups and downs. And what it's like living with Williams Syndrome. We're excited to share our community with you. Thanks for being here. enjoying our podcast together it's been really fun yeah it's been really cool it's been really therapeutic and a lot of fun yeah you're did you just have your first band concert I just had my second band concert on Friday um with my sister and the Jewish rock band that we're in uh and it was really cool it was um a pride event okay so we played music, and then we got these really cool bands. The one, one that I have says, Love Always Wins. Oh, cool. And then I also got one that says, Proud of Who I Am, because I myself am a, a big ally and big supporter of the LGBTQIA plus community. Happy Pride Month to all of our friends out there, if that it's is Pride. you. Yeah. We had a couple cool guests on. Our first guest was the uh, the wonderful Tyler Levy uh, from Louisville, Kentucky. Yeah, he he was great. Talked about a lot about a lot of uh, the advocacy work that he does. He was his energy was amazing. It was infectious, and it was so awesome to see him be so excited about you know being on the podcast and being able to share everything that he's been doing. Yeah, it was really cool. He was, he was fun to interview. My dad has been staying with me this week. And so my dad was listening to him and I got off the phone or the call and he was like, that young man just, you know, made, made me so proud that he's doing all the great things that he's doing. And, um, you know, my dad as the grandparent of somebody who has Williams syndrome was really impressed with, um, with Tyler. So great job, Tyler. And we also had yeah, Dr. Pober, amazing. I've known Dr. Pober since I was about 12. And um, yeah, she she really knows her stuff. She does. I was looking at her um, credentials. So she's a gen- geneticist um, who actually didn't start out um, in specifically in Williams Syndrome, but through the course of her work, um, fell in love with the Williams Syndrome community. And she... Um, started one of the first multidisciplinary clinics for individuals with Williams syndrome. Right now, she is working on a study about people with Williams syndrome and and um, how how weight plays into you know our um, genetic profile. So many people with Williams syndrome do struggle with weight um, and have other you know medical related issues as a result of that. And so that was really fascinating and very timely because we're in a season in our life where food is becoming a big topic around our house. Definitely. Sure. Yeah. Well, let's get started. Yeah. Hello, Tyler. How are you? Great. Thanks. How are you, Brendan? Doing well. Uh, welcome to the, to the podcast. Uh, for those who don't know you, uh, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself and what you do? 
Okay, gladly. I am. Hello, everyone. My name is Tyler Levy. I am a uh, I am a person with what's called Williams syndrome. Williams syndrome affects one in ten thousand people. So we're as rare as a four leaf clover. Yeah. <laughs> and although May is Williams syndrome awareness month, I think that every day should be about awareness because not a lot of people know about Williams syndrome. Right. Yeah. That's true. Where do you live, Tyler? Louisville, Kentucky. Wow, my stepdad grew up in Louisville, and we're actually thinking of maybe going to the Derby either next year or the following year. Have you ever been to the Derby? I have. Uh, I've been to the Oaks uh, on the infield. Ah, uh, yeah. And I've seen drunk people running running on the top on top of those stalls. <laughs> it's crazy there, man. It's a scene for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I believe it, Tyler. How old were you when you were diagnosed with Lamb syndrome? I was, I believe, two. I don't remember exactly, but uh, but I'm just glad that I have it. Yeah, it's pretty awesome to have. Are you, how old are you, did you say? 32, 31. 31, okay, okay. So did you grow up in Louisville? Born and bred. Okay, okay. And uh -huh. how, tell us about your life growing up in Louisville. So if you've had Williams syndrome or you've known about it since you were two, like walk us through that journey. You've been in the same place your whole life. Well, let me start by saying that, uh, that the past few years have been absolutely amazing since I really started to see myself as an advocate and all these big opportunities are coming down on a podcast talking about Williams syndrome. So growing up, you went to school in Louisville. How was like going to middle school, high school? I went to Anchorage Public School from kindergarten to eighth grade. So okay. I had resource and then I was in a, what we call integrated classrooms, which is, I was like the only one in my class with Williams Syndrome. So both high school and, so both, yeah, both middle school and high school, both, uh, yeah, both elementary, middle school, and high school as the only with William syndrome in the class in my graduating class. Okay, was your school supportive of you having William syndrome? Very much so. And now, after high school, what have you been doing? I went to a uh, after graduating from high school. I went to a uh, vocational training school called Carl D. Perkins, where I uh, I graduated in twenty eleven. Do you enjoy working? I love it. It's great. It's great being out, being there. I think there should be some law that comes out that says that every that every job site must be supportive of people with disabilities because they they have the same rights as everyone else. We have the same rights as everyone else, and and uh, we deserve to be integrated into society just like everyone else. I agree. I started working when I was twelve, and I have I firmly believe that having a job gives you so many other benefits, right? Other than just working. I mean, it gives you independence. It gives you the opportunity to connect with people socially. It gives you the opportunity to learn infrastructure, um, gives you independence. There's so many benefits to it. And so I'm a big advocate of people having jobs. But the other benefit, I believe, of hiring individuals with disabilities is you get the, the tenure, right? People with disabilities traditionally stay in their jobs a lot longer um, and are happier there. And also I have something called community living supports, which helped me, helps me around the house, like cleaning stuff. And then we, 
we get business done first, and then we go out and we have fun, and uh, and I still go grocery shopping with them, and and uh, it's very fun too. That's awesome. Yeah. Do you live on your own? Single bedroom. Yes, I do. Nice. And so you have somebody that comes in and makes sure that you're doing all the things that you're supposed to be doing. A big team. Yeah, and I love working with all of them. They're so awesome. The company that I get that provides my CLS is called is called uh, Access Committee Assistance. A big a big shout out to Susan Stokes and Ken Nelson who have helped form who have helped form a really good awesome CLS team. That's cool. So CLS means Community Living Support. Yes, it does. Okay. How long have you lived by yourself? Since uh, let's see, I had a couple roommates, so this all started. In 2011, really late 2011 into 2012. And then by 2012, I was living with a roommate. And then, uh, by, and then I lived with, I had two different roommates. So, uh, one was from 2012 to 2014. One was from 2013. I mean, from 2012 to 20, late 2011 to 2013. And then next one was from 2013 to, uh, December 1st of 2018, then on December 1st of 2018, I moved into a single bedroom. I've been in a single bedroom ever since. Well, I think this is great because, as you know, a lot of our people in our community who have Williams Syndrome, they aspire to live being on their own like you. Um, Do you want to share with our listeners, like, just any tips or suggestions you have to making that happen? I mean, you've been doing this for a long time. Yeah, go out there and... And uh, say, you know what? I think I'm ready to live on my own, and then uh, and then see what happens. Call call different places, and see if they have any places, anything available. That's what I've, I think. That's great. That's how I got to where I am at Clifton Court. Is that uh, an apartment complex? Do you have friends that live there? Yes, I do. Uh, it is a it is indeed a an apartment complex. And what kind of friends do you have there? Uh, really good friends. Uh, I think it's really good that that I'm able that there's a lot of people here that I could trust. Mm. Good. Yeah. That's important. So, Tyler, I have a question for you. Yes, sir. Uh, what do you think are some of the advantages of having a person like yourself with a disability in the workplace? That I could promote for people with disabilities that yes, we are worthy too. Mm-hmm. And uh, and yes, we have the same rights as everyone else. And yes, we have the right to be integrated into the uh, workforce because we're the same as everyone else. We might look different, but at the end of the day, we have the same rights as everyone else. That's awesome. Thanks. Yeah. That's the one that I'm going to stick with. If anyone else were to ask me that question. That's an awesome answer. Yeah, you were mentioning that you're really interested in advocacy. Can you tell us more about that? Thanks. Well, I have, uh, I have been to... Washington D.C. Before I have talked to a uh, legislature in in Frankfurt. I've been to Frankfurt, mul- Frankfurt, Kentucky, multiple times. Uh, we have a really good governor here by the name of Governor Andy Bashir. Big shout out to big chatting and shout out and hello to him. He is really good about people with disabilities. That's cool. Have you met him before? I really want to. Oh, well, maybe maybe we'll tag him in this podcast and he can listen. We can we can hook up a connection for you, too. Oh, that would be so cool. <laughs> yeah, that'd be awesome. We'll, we'll make it happen. All right. How, so how, 
how did you learn about like self-advocacy and like, I know you're mentioning that you're interested in it. Like what, tell us about that. I was, uh, I had been trained by multiple people. Some of the best advocates in Kentucky, like Donna Fox, David Allgood, uh, Nicole Mayer, all kinds of people that have got me to where I am today. Because without them, I would not be doing this today. Yeah, so you had a lot of good people in your community that supported you. Do you know other people with Williams Syndrome, or do you have some people in your community with Williams Syndrome that you're friends with? Uh, Peter Kerbstein, uh, I'll talk my head in Louisville with Williams Syndrome, but there's also a guy named Clayton Carroll who has oh. Williams Syndrome. Clay, Clayton, yeah. awesome. I'm, he's a he's a good friend of mine. Yeah, his mom is really cool too. I'm thinking about nominating Clayton to be a Kentucky Colonel. I'm a Kentucky Colonel, and it's and so uh, I was nominated in 2020. Got my uh, in got commissioned in 2021 January. Okay, of what 2020. does that mean? What's a Kentucky Colonel? The highest honor you could get in Kentucky bestowed on you by the governor. It's like it's the uh, it's the it's like the Super Bowl of honors that you that you could get in Kentucky. Wow, that's big, big, big. It is. Do you get like do you get like a pin or a hat or a, a jacket? What do you get when you're a Kentucky Colonel? We get all kinds of stuff. I have a sticker from the Kentucky Colonels on my bedroom door. And does yeah, that mean my- you get like? key to the city do you get to like go to certain cool places yeah we get our own Kentucky colonel ids it's fun being a colonel and there's different social events and all kinds of stuff oh that's cool what i was do you the first do... oh, go ahead. sorry go ahead i was the first Kentucky colonel that no to have william syndrome oh wow that's awesome and now you're thinking about nominating other people that's pretty cool i am what do you do for fun tyler Go to the mall to hang out with friends. Let's see. Go to movies, watch movies, play video games, uh, watch TV. And when I'm relaxing, just relax and chillax and whatever other lax there is. <laughs> that sounds nice. Do you have um, hobbies? I used to do martial arts. Now I'm a black belt. Oh, wow. Well, that's cool. Do you still do that? The pricing got way too high, so I had to step down. Yeah. I got you. I, um, I did martial arts when I was younger, too. I did uh, Kempo Karate. And then I had to stop because we moved. And then I just, I never picked it up. But that's I cool. Did yeah, I did Shaolin Kempo. Oh, cool. Which is, yeah, which is, which is completely together with karate. It was founded by a guy named uh, Grandmaster Fred, Frederick Valari, who is unfortunately no longer with us. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I met some cool people along the way during my martial arts journey, like Alan, like Master Alan White, Master John Riker, and all kind, all kinds of people. So I have another question for you. Um, what are things that you do that keep you positive? Let's see. I uh, let's see. I take walks. I Talk to friends. I have awesome CLS here. I have, there's just so many positive things. It's hard to name them all. That's cool. Yeah, that is cool. Do we get to see you at Williams Syndrome events? I do. I have been to multiple conventions and I'm very glad that, that uh, next year I heard that they're going to, that there's going to be a full, a full on launch of a, uh, 
of an ambassadorship for people with William Tinder to be William Simmer ambassadors, which I'm like really stoked about. Yeah, it's gonna okay. be great. I bet you are. Have you been, are either of you or have you been ambassadors before, Brendan or Tyler? I have, but for not for this, not for the Women's Association, but for Best Buddies, I was a part of the uh, ambassador program there. But yeah, there's a a lot of we just started the uh, ambassadors program again. Just a few of us, uh, a few of the board members, and myself were we're working on it, and it's going to be something really big and great for next year. And yeah, it's going to be awesome. So, are you a member of the WSA board? Yes, I am on. I am. I am a board of trustee. Oh, nice. Well, I appreciate you coming on. This has been so fun. It goes by so fast, and I feel like we never have enough time for all the questions. Before we go, though, is there anything else you want to tell the community about your journey with Williams Syndrome or what you want them to know about Williams Syndrome? It's just kind of what's your parting thoughts? Yes, there are struggles with Williams Syndrome, like. Heart issues, bladder issues, and uh, and some other issues. But we're also some of the most popular, friendly, some of the most positive, friendly people you will ever meet. And I am so glad to be part of this community. I'm glad you're part of our community, too. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, thank, thank you, you for having me. All right, well, hello, Dr. Pober. Hi, Brendan. How are nice you? Nice to see you. I'm good. How are you? Good. It's nice to see you too. So uh, for those that don't know who you are, uh, why don't you tell us about yourself and what you do? Thank you for asking. I'm I'm a medical geneticist. I set up one of the first clinics, multidiscipl- multidisciplinary clinics for Williams Syndrome before most of you were born in 1987. Mm-hmm. So I've been working with people with Williams Syndrome and their families for a long time. Mm-hmm. And as I've gotten older, a lot of the people I follow have gotten older too. So I probably see more adults with Williams syndrome than anybody else and try and help in clinic and also ask clinical research questions, important questions uh, that hopefully the answers will improve people's health and well-being. So you, I have not had the pleasure of meeting you before, um, so it's exciting to meet you. Likewise. My daughter Stella, my daughter Stella, who you just saw a minute ago, she is almost 13 and she was diagnosed at five. Um, and it was a very surprising situation because we had kind of taken her to do certain things and nobody had ever mentioned anything. And then one day we had a, um, Stella was in preschool and we decided to hold her back. So instead of doing two years of preschool, she did three. And the, thir- the, the teacher the third year was different. It was a new teacher. And at the very first parent-teacher conference, she said, Stella reminds me of a girl I used mm-hmm. to teach who has Williams syndrome. And I went out to the car and I pulled it up and I was like, oh my gosh, like this is totally what she has. So you've been doing this a long time. How did you get into this line of work? Well, first, first let me say that what you share is not uncommon. Um, Currently, there's wider availability of genetic testing than there used to be. So your story may be less common now than it was in the past. But in the past, the number of times people would say, I mean, again, I bumped into somebody 
at the hairdressers with my daughter and they said, oh, how old is your daughter with William syndrome? And they would go, with what? Um, so, you know, serendipitous diagnosis, not at all un uncommon. But how I got into this um, was through the study of genetics. Before we knew that Williams syndrome was due to a small deletion on chromosome 7, uh, there was actually a paper was published saying uh, it was due to a deletion on chromosome 15. We now know that's not correct. And in my training, I uh, had a job that was half clinical genetics, half seeing patients, and half looking at chromosome uh, to try and prove was there a change on chromosome 15 or not. Over time, I just became much more interested in the people part of uh, my job than the chromosome part of my job. And the more folks that I met, the more I decided we really needed a multidisciplinary clinic, mm -hmm. that there were lots of issues, both medical and developmental, and people deserve to see somebody, it's sort of my standard half joke, for whom they didn't have to spell Williams. People deserve yeah. to see someone from whom they could learn and so we need a dedicated expert um, to provide care. And so that's what I helped set up in 1987. So before that, were you like, am I correct in saying you were working on Williams syndrome? Like did nope, somebody just- I was a general, I was a general geneticist. I would see anybody who was referred to genetics clinic. Okay. And, okay. and then, as I say, my research and clinical interests dovetailed on trying to answer this question of chromosome 15 in people with Williams syndrome. And, you know, the more people that I saw, the more sort of engaged I got. Um, you know, I'm, I'm no fool. Who doesn't want to see somebody in clinic who tells you they love you? Um, so I said, hmm, maybe I could spend a lot of my time working uh, with people with Williams syndrome and their families. And that indeed turned out to be the case and has been, you know, amazingly humbling and gratifying at the same time. So 1987, you started the first multidisciplinary clinic. Right. It's, it's one of the first. I mean, up there with, I think, Ohio with 87 is the first or, you know, two were started that year, but right there at the, the front of the line. And so what does that, what did that involve? I mean, it involved, like you said, people didn't know Williams syndrome, right? And I mean, still we'll go into the doctor and people don't know what Williams syndrome is. And I have to explain that. So that was a lot of work probably for you to go out and find people who had some background with Williams. So, I mean, you're right. Early in 1987, the hardest part of setting this up wasn't actually finding people who knew anything at the outset, but finding people who were willing to learn. And I went to sort of each section, each department and said, I don't want the PT who happens to be available that day. I want one PT dedicated to this clinic. And all right, you can make it two. There can be a backup in case the one is away or something comes up. But I want, you know, one person who was going to take this on and um, you know, get as excited about helping these families as I am. 
And lo and behold, we managed to work that out. And in fact, some of the same people back from 1987 are still involved in providing care. Because um, I knew once a provider starts working with people with Williams syndrome and their families, you know, they're, they're, they're going to love it and going to want to continue to do it if they possibly can. That's awesome. Oh, that's fascinating. So how did you get involved with the WSA specifically? Was that just part of being doing the research with on Williams syndrome and then finding that connection or did they find you? You know, great question. I mean, because I was a general geneticist, um, I kind of interacted with numerous parent support groups, always trying to help families learn more about the condition, educate those around them, not feel so isolated. Um, and as I became more involved in the Williams world, you know, Terry Monkeba was at the leadership of the WSA and she was amazing. Yeah. She um, took, you know, this small mom and pop group and really expanded it and I mean, not only wanted to provide education and clinical resources, also um, brought the, you know, raised the profile of the importance of research. So it, it was a kindred spirit. Do you remember your first Williams syndrome patient or the first person? Oh, yes. With Williams syndrome? I know you I, probably share. No, I remember my first patient. I still have a picture of, of him and he's somebody I still periodically see. Um, oh, wow. I met him. Well, it. it he was in the hospital. I met him first as an infant, as an inpatient, and was just taken by his family, followed him over time. But I, absolutely, I, I probably remember most of my patients, but I certainly remember my first patient. You remember him, yeah. Brendan, do you remember the first person you met after you were diagnosed with Williams Syndrome? Um, yeah, I do. Um I had just gone up to Massachusetts to go to camp at uh, Belvoir Terrace. And I had connected with a family, um, Tori Ackley, the Ackleys, who are still part of my family and I am still great friends with. And um, Tori was in my band. Um, and I, Tori was the first person that I ever met that had Williams Syndrome. Uh, and we immediately clicked. And then I went to the camp and then I met more people with Williams syndrome and it was just so eye-opening and so so amazing uh it was something that i won't ever forget you know right. yeah it's one of the things that i love about the Williams syndrome conventions the most i mean when i see people when they come to see me in clinic i mean they're coming to see a doctor it's a hospital and even though they may have been told 10 times by their parent no dr pober is not drawing blood today it is <laughs> the first question are you going to draw my blood today so it's it doesn't bring, bring people out the best out uh of people going to the family convention and seeing children adults with williams syndrome relaxed in their element they didn't have to explain themselves that's the other thing that's so empowering um it, you know, there no explanation necessary. So I, the the conventions are wonderful, right? Not only for you know the folks who go, but for for those of us who are in the Williams world, even, even though we don't have a 
direct connection with a Williams syndrome family member. And so yeah. I think everything that can be done to make conventions an opportunity for as many people as possible is, is a good thing. So can I ask like a really weird question? Um, you, you can ask, that doesn't mean I will okay. answer. Okay. So what, aside from the initial diagnosis, right. And getting that diagnosis, what role does a geneticist play throughout the span of patients? Like you were saying, you see mostly adults and two, like, um, I guess I'm asking a question about, you know, the, so have you ever, if you've ever heard about this, like difference in base pairs, like some people might have a smaller deletion, some people might have a bigger deletion and just anything you know about that. So there are a couple of questions <laughs> uh, in there. Um, so um, there are two roles that geneticists can play, um, diagnosis and management. So some geneticists are purely diagnosticians. Okay. So there's a child who has, you know, developmental delay or poor feeding or poor growth. Um, could this be a genetic condition? And so that coming to clinic and, you know, maybe it's Williams syndrome, maybe it's something else. And the geneticist plays um, a key role in that, you know, for 20 years plus, you know, FISH was the standard diagnostic testing. Now it's the microarray test. Though FISH isn't inaccurate, it just gives a little less information. Um, there are changes besides the Williams syndrome deletion that can show up on the microarray. So a geneticist would interpret, are there additional changes? Do those changes have any significance for your family member with Williams syndrome or perhaps somebody else in the family? Um, and then a geneticist is, uh, again, from the, under this kind of the diagnostic umbrella, involved in um, recurrence risk counseling. Is this going to happen again? Um, and perhaps, um, you know, counseling about prenatal testing, prenatal diagnosis, though, is likely to refer a family to a prenatal genetic counselor uh, for the sort of the nitty gritty of, of prenatal. So that's, you know, that can be the diagnosis part, you know, can be sort of a one and done. I mean, you usually at the time of initial diagnosis, the geneticist will also outline um, kind of the, the action plan. Gee, you know, you should see a cardiologist or gee, we should check a calcium level. So they usually get the ball rolling or, you know, referral to early intervention if that hasn't already taken place. But then the the other part um, is management. You don't have to be a geneticist to run a management program, but if you run a multidisciplinary Williams syndrome clinic, meaning you will either be a geneticist or a cardiologist or a developmentalist, um, et cetera. So, I mean, I still see folks across the lifespan, you know, from newborn to adulthood, but because I run a management clinic, you know, people come back for follow-up. So it kind of tends to, the adults tend to accumulate over time because they keep coming back every one to two years for, for follow-up. Um, but a, a management clinic, again, you don't have to be a geneticist, but in my case, I am, and many of 
the management clinics, the William syndrome clinics are the are run by the core person is is a geneticist. But okay. again, that's a different uh, you know that's a different sort of flavor than the diagnostician. Um, so your second question. The, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You go ahead. I was going to just say, like, so that makes sense that, like, I guess I thought all geneticists were kind of created equal, right? And they all kind of did the same role, but they, they don't. Oh, there, don't there are so many flavors of geneticists. There are metabolic geneticists. There are cancer geneticists. Again, there are prenatal geneticists. There are pediatric geneticists. There are adult geneticists. So within genetics, um, there are lots of um, sub sub specialty areas. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I just was wondering if you'd ever heard that there were like differences in people with Liam's in terms of like their base. Pairs. Oh, no. Oh, oh. Uh, in terms of the size of the deletion. Uh, no. I mean, yeah. that was, oh, is that what it means? <laughs> this is the, me um, trying to talk about genetics. Oh, it's terrible. The, Not a doctor. Um, so when we first learned in 1993 that people with Williams syndrome had an elastin gene deletion, um, that was by fish. That's all we saw is that people with Williams syndrome were missing one copy of an elastin gene. The immediate conclusion was, well, maybe there's different size deletions in this region to explain the enormous variability we see. Um, okay. Some folks, you know, have serious heart problems from the get-go. Others never really have serious heart problems. And yeah. same for the developmental spectrum is broad. So the hypothesis was that people with small deletions, maybe the elastin gene and a couple genes nearby, would have few problems, but that there had to be other folks who had the elastin gene deletion but were missing more neighboring genes and had a larger deletion. Um, that hypothesis was proved false fairly quickly. So we now know, I mean, current genetic um, microarray, let us say, or even sequencing to some extent, we now know that the vast majority of people have what looks like the same size deletion. There are exceptions, maybe two, three, four percent have a smaller deletion and generally have fewer problems. And then there's another percent who have a larger deletion, even larger than the typical Williams syndrome deletion. And as you would predict, have more problems. Uh, why some of these variations in deletion size arise um, is still an active area of research. That next step of what does it mean mm -hmm. for taking care of your family member with Williams syndrome or predicting their future, that is where the sort of the research is, is going because we don't have that next piece yet. So I, I know we talked a little bit about the uh, at-home genetics testing and things about, you know, like that a little bit earlier. So what are your thoughts about it and what are your thoughts about it in the Williams syndrome community? Um, there are what I would call at-home genetic tests that your doctor orders for you. Mm -hmm. So I have ordered tests from reputable genetic labs. The lab sends a, a kit to the family where they're either, it's a little sponge and they're collecting some saliva or again, it's 
it's like a soft toothbrush and they're just rubbing it on the inside of their cheek. Um, and the family sends the kit back to the lab and the lab sends me a test result. Uh, and it's as accurate as if you had blood drawn in the, in the office or in the lab. So wow. that's a test that your doctor orders and it has to be the right test. Right. Right. It, you know, it, ha it has to be uh, ordered by someone knowledgeable about ordering genetic testing. Um, and in all likelihood, your insurance company has to approve this uh, test before the kit will get sent to you. There are, you know, like 23andMe, there are mm -hmm. what are called direct-to-consumer tests. So right. those are tests you, as the consumer, um, can go online and order. Those, I would have much less confidence, right. are able to diagnose Williams syndrome and would not recommend going that route. I'm I not a big fan of self-diagnosis. Well, tell us about your work that you are doing right now. Now it's more body composition, why some folks get very heavy and why others. And it's fascinating to me. Um, it's a complicated problem, but we are seeing um, a fair number of, I don't want to say, I mean, eating preferences, distinct eating preferences. Yes. We just published uh, a paper on looking at um, what 82 adults with Williams syndrome eat. And I guess the good, there's good news and there's bad news. The bad news is on average, people with Williams syndrome, very unhealthy diet. I don't know. The, whether this, the good news is their diet is just about as bad as the average American diet. So they're, they're, they're eating. They're in, um, line. You know, they're in line with this. The they are diet. in line. The, I mean, the concern is that the problems that eating an unhealthy diet for decades, um, you know, lead to, and whether that is obesity, high blood pressure, et cetera, that, People with Williams syndrome are already at risk for developing these problems. And, you know, the concern is if it's a one-two combo, um, is, is that even worse in terms of outcomes? But how to, how to manage this, how to get people to be more active and make healthier choices, um, that's a very complicated and separate conversation. I often hear, or the pushback I get is, you know, telling me to uh, be more active. That sounds like a punishment. And I'm going, no, it's, it's not a punishment. This is healthy lifestyle. And how to get people to embrace that as opposed to feeling like that's another demand on them. Yep. Um, and I also can't tell you the number of times I have heard, I know my rights. You can't tell me what to do. Um, <laughs> that line. <laughs> oh yeah. That's a very, very popular one. The, um, so how to get adults to embrace this healthier lifestyle? Um, you know, we're certainly struggling with how, how to share that message. Yeah. People with Williams syndrome, I mean, across the age spectrum, um, need to feel like they're in 
control of, if not all their choices, some or many of their choices. And so um, getting people more involved in the kitchen with food preparation and and trying different foods. And actually they went and they bought that item and they're gonna help you cook it. And all right, they tried it and didn't like it. But being more a more active member of the process um, is not easy, but is one strategy um, that I think is 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 worth exploring further. But I'd love to have you know have in some way with a a dietitian. I mean, we're our paper. We're very fortunate. We're probably working with the only well, I don't know if it's the only only one I could find who is a PhD nutritionist who works only with uh, individuals, children and adults with special needs and did her PhD thesis on Williams syndrome. She's absolutely lovely. The main challenge is she lives in Norway, uh, but she's, <laughs> um, it, it's a hard intersection finding nutritionists who just don't say, oh, here's the here's the 1500 calorie diet. You can see which foods you can eat. Goodbye and good luck. I mean, we need somebody more invested with special skills uh, to work with individuals, teens and, and adults, um, getting them to be part of the sort of the eating process, the, the entire food process. Thank you both. Well, all right. all, both of you and Joel, thank you. You've been listening to The Starry-Eyed Effect, presented by the Williams Syndrome Association. The show is hosted by Jennifer Keaton, Brendan Lemieux, and Stephanie Karen, and produced by me, Joel Listman. Theme song by Tommy Barbarella and Mariella Elm. Got a question for the show? Email us at podcast at williams-syndrome.org. Video version of the podcast available on YouTube at the Williams Syndrome Association channel. Review us on Apple Podcasts and maybe it will get featured on a future episode. Make sure to like and subscribe to The Starry-Eyed Effect wherever you get your podcast delights. Yeah.